0: One of the more confounding figures in the church today is Bishop Robert Barron. The man is, by all accounts, a likable and well-meaning bishop on some issues. I agree with him 100%. I take him at complete face value when he expresses his utter just bafflement and confusion at the total lack of belief in the real presence of our blessed Lord in the Eucharist. I take his concern to be there very real. At the same time, he's very confusing and confounding because he has made numerous statements and done numerous things that show that he is not exactly a friend of traditional Catholics. He is, I would say, charitably a moderate. You're not going to see him doing too much of the, you know, Cardinal McElroy kind of stuff, the synod on synodality kind of things, where there's entertaining the idea of remaking Catholicism from the ground up, basically. Even though he has in the past been associated with Pastor Jimmy Martin of the Jesuit Church and people like that, such is the nature of being a moderate. You'll often find that moderates are associated with people you may not like much, even if you agree with the moderate on some things. I am going to, before we get to the story today, give you, just to make abundantly clear to people, I'm not exactly a fan of Bishop Barron, I just think that this is a case of when you lose the moderates, you've lost the, the the rhetoric battle. So Bishop Barron is famous, before we get to our story for the day, of back in 2020, deciding that what the church really needed was to put the clamps down on the unauthorized critiques of things going on in the hierarchy, in the media, meaning the new Catholic media. He wasn't the first, nor will he probably be the last figure in the church to try to Essentially, control and corral where the critiques of the hierarchy are going. What and to control Catholic media, this sort of wild west landscape of new Catholic media. This is a National Catholic Register article from a, back in 2020. I'll have these linked in the show notes today. When um, for the show notes post for my new my regular news video for the day, I'll also include this live link to this live stream and all these sources here. We hear Bishop Barron said that he believes the bishops should consider exercising their authority in the digital sphere. That means YouTube and podcasts and blogs and news sites. Quote, Justice John Paul II at Ex corde Ecclesia called for the bishops to exercise greater supervision of universities operating under the aegis of the church. Hold on there. (coughs) Excuse me. Ex corde Ecclesia was a document issued by John Paul II in the 1980s. Pardon me, what a time to cough. I tried to rein in the universities. Catholic university system had fallen to pot, basically. That's nothing new. We all have heard the horror stories coming out of Catholic colleges. (coughs) This attempt by Bishop Barron, what he's advocating here, for the digital sphere would have the same effect it had for Catholic universities, meaning none. There were a few universities that Decided to try to re-embrace being Catholic after the Land of Lakes fiasco in the 1960s to try to actually reinvigorate their Catholic identity. But you know, Catholic universities who signed the Land of Lakes statement largely would have kept going with modernism. Notre Dame being like the prime examples where the figures behind the Land of Lakes conference and the statement there were responsible for that ex Ecclesia was response to the Land of Lake Statement, which I covered on this channel in some couple years, probably a year ago now or something. But it was a statement issued in the 1960s that said, hey, we are going to, you know, pursue academic freedom and not really care what the church has to say on a whole bunch of moral issues and other things. And this is really where a lot of our problems came from. Ex-Cord Ecclesia was response to that. To say the Catholic university should cat should actually be Catholic and should be dedicated to the faith and teaching the faith, right? Well, it didn't have much of an effect. Some universities, of course, did embrace the statement. Some left the Land Lake statement behind and tried to uh, get back into the good graces of the hierarchy, but mostly it had no effect. And this would be the same thing if you had the hierarchy trying to impose... This kind of control over the digital space. Well, what would happen is you get the National Catholic Register and a few others would be like, okay, but they're not the ones they're worried about. They're worried about YouTubers, they're worried about podcasters, they're worried about blog writers. Can you imagine like Louis Varecchio pursuing the, you know, trying to submit himself to Ex Corte Ecclesia, for instance? I, I can't imagine that. Bishop Barron's reasoning for this back then was, there are to be blunt a disconcerting number of such people on social media who are trading an hateful, divisive speech, often deeply at odds with the theology of the church, and who are sadly having a powerful impact on the people of God, he said. I do think the shepherds of the church, those entrusted with supervising the teaching office, can and should point out when people on social media are harming the body of Christ. He suggested that it may be time for bishops to introduce some Something like a mandatum for those who claim to teach the Catholic faith online, whereby a bishop affirms that the person is teaching within the full community, communion of the church. At the same time, he encouraged the rising generation who have social media in their blood and their fingers to delve deeply into the church's intellectual and spiritual tradition and dedicate their use of these technologies. Okay. So gonna be talking about Bishop Aaron here. Again, I don't want people to be mistaken in thinking that I am a huge fan of his. I'm um, also, I'm not because I am a traditional Catholic. And he said this on Twitter some time ago. Friends, I am a traditionalist. I stand with Christian revelation in the entirety of church teaching. From the Council of Jerusalem through Nicaea, Chalcedon, and Trent. Since, before the, tradi- since the church's tradition includes the second Vatican council, it's therefore impossible to repudiate Vatican II and claim to be a faithful traditional Catholic. There's nothing traditional about rejecting an ecumenical council. Learn more at his video on his YouTube channel. And, you know, there was a time when he was all over the news all the time going after traditional Catholics. He hasn't done that much lately. Um, I just want to make sure people remember that. So the question is to define what, te- what does teaching mean? Good question. Helen O'Connor says she, Bishop Barron, freaked her out so much at one point that she threw out her whole DVD set on Catholicism. Um, yeah, I had I had that set too. I, I rescued it from uh, when the university was Catholic university was close was closing because there were students literally just stealing. So I rescued it to try to get back to the monks who owned the university that didn't go so well, but I at least tried. But so let's actually get to our main story for the day. The Bishop Baron may find himself in trouble with a little bit of Rome because he has decided that he is not a fan of the synod of sin. Let's actually get the right link over here. <laughs> Sorry, here we go. He wrote this piece for Word on Fire called My Experience of the Synod. It was published uh, almost a week ago, honestly, and it didn't actually, it took a few days to take off online. But here's what it says. Now that I've had a bit of time to readjust to my normal rhythm and to think through the rather extraordinary experience of the of the last month in Rome, I would like to share some impressions on the Synod of Synodality, even as I will endeavor not to violate the Pope's request to refrain talking about particular participants and votes. So I limit myself to commenting on the published document that the Synod members approved and my own interventions during the deliberations. The summary statement was very accurately expresses the fact that the overwhelming concern of the Synod members was to listen to the voices of those who have, for a variety of reasons, felt marginalized from the life of the Church. This motif was the common denominator in all of the preliminary sessions leading up to the Synod, and it was prominently featured in the working document that provided the basis for our discussions. Women, lady in general, the James Martin crowd, those with disabilities, young people, and women of color, etc., have felt unappreciated, and most importantly excluded from the tables where decisions are taken that affect the whole life of the church. I can assure everyone that their demand to be heard was heard loud and clear of the synod, and I'm glad it was. The church is meant to announce the gospel to everyone. Todos, 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 as the Pope rightly says. And to gather them into the body of Christ. Therefore, if there are armies of Catholics who feel excluded or condescended to, that's a major pastoral problem that must be addressed with humility and honestly. How about trads? We'd kind of feel that way too, but we weren't invited. Anyway. And I can say as someone who has been a full-time ecclesiastical administrator for the past 12 years, I am delighted to receive the Council of Laity in regard to practically all aspects of my work, expanding the number and diversity of those who might aid the bishops in their governance of the church is all to the good and bravo to the Synod for exploring this possibility. A question that I raised several times in these small group conversations, however, was whether in our enthusiasm to include people in the governance of the church, we forget that the vocation of 99% of the Catholic laity is to sanctify the world. To bring Christ to the arenas of politics, the arts, entertainment, communication, business, medicine, etc., precisely where they have special competence. Let's pause there. That's a fancy way of saying that most people have a vocation to the to live what has historically been the norm for most Catholics, which is to be married and have families. That's where 99.9% of Catholics are called to. Okay. Generally speaking, I was worried that both the instrumentum laboris and the synod conversations were far more preoccupied with the ad intra than with the ad extra, and this despite the fact that Pope Francis has been consistently calling for a church that goes out from itself. Here he's calling the synod on synodality basically navel-gazing, which is true. On a number of occasions during the synod, I proposed the Catholic action model that was, in the Preconciliar period, such an effective way to form the laity and their mission in the world. Catholic action was essentially directed by bishops to sort of go out into the world and actually do Catholic things in the social sphere it was very, it wasn't, things were not nearly as independent as they are now. You have had much greater oversight on any Catholic act, acting in the public sphere and for good reasons. Another principal theme of the synod discussions was the play of perceived tension between love and truth. On the one hand, we must welcome everyone, but lest this welcome devolve into a form of cheap grace to use Dietrich Bonhoeffer's term, we at the same time must summon those who, include, who we include to conversion to live according to the truth. As you might expect, this issue became concretized around the outreach to the James Martin crowd. Particularly everyone at the Synod held that those whose lives of the flesh are outside of the norm should be treated with love and respect. And again, bravo to the Synod for making this pastoral point so emphatically. But many Synod participants also felt that the truth of the Church's moral teaching in regard to this topic ought never to be set aside. One of the interventions that I made at the plenary assembly was on this theme. I observed that when the terms are rightly understood, there is no real tension between love and truth. For love is not a feeling, but the act by which one wills the good of another. That's just basic Catholicism 101. You'll hear that in our C.I.A. The fact that he had to remind people participating in the synod of that is troubling. Therefore, one cannot authentically love someone else unless he has a truthful perception of what is really good for that person. There might, I argued, be a tension between welcoming and truth, but not between authentic love and truth. A third use of interest concerned for me centered around the notion of mission. The term mission was used constantly in the text we considered, in the conversations we had. That the Church is a mission, to use Pope St. Paul VI's language, was taken for granted by the Synod members. And this represents a significant and very encouraging appropriation of the teaching of Vatican II and of the post-conciliar papal magisterium. Pope St. John Paul II's indefatigable teaching on the new evangelization has evidently worked its way into the heart and the mind of the worldwide church, but there was, at least to my mind, a fair amount of ambiguity around the meaning of the word itself. Judging from what we read in the Instrumentum Laboris, missions seem more often than not, to designate the church's work in favor of social justice and the betterment of economic and political situation for the poor. I read the Instrumentum Laboris. That's accurate. And that's because the uh, Synod on Synodality is an an exercise in liberation theology at its core. Conspicuous by their absence in the text on mission were references to sin, grace, redemption, cross, resurrection, eternal life, and salvation. And this represents a real danger. No kidding. For a point of fact, the primary mission of the church is to declare the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to invite people to place themselves under his lordship. This discipleship, to be sure, has implications for the way we live in the world, and it certainly should lead us to work for justice, but we must keep our priorities straight. The supernatural should never be reduced to the natural. Rather, the natural order should be transfigured by its relationship to the supernatural order. A final point, and here I find myself in frank disagreement with the final synodal report, has to do with the development of moral teaching in regard to uh, activities suitable to the married state. The suggestion is made that advances in our scientific understanding will require rethinking of our teaching on the subject, whose categories are apparently inadequate to describe the complexities of, of human nature. At first, a first problem I have with this language is that it is so condescending to the richly articulate tradition of moral reflection in Catholicism. A prime example of which is the theology of the body developed by John Paul II. To say that this multi-layered, philosophically informed, theologically dense system is incapable of handling the subtleties of the activities of the flesh is just absurd. And I agree with him there. The deeper problem I have is that this manner of argumentation is based upon a category error, namely that advances in the sciences as such require an evolution and moral teaching. Let us take, for example, the James Martin topic. Evolutionary biology, anthropology, and chemistry might give us fresh insight into etiology and physical dimension of the topic, but they will not tell us a thing about whether this behavior is right or wrong. The entertaining of that question belongs to another mode of discourse. It is troubling to see that some of the members of the German Bishops' Conference are already using the language of the Synod report to justify major reformulations of the Church's teaching. This seems to me must be resisted. The very best part of the Synod was, of course, coming into close contact with Catholic leaders from all over the world. In my very small groups, and during the very lively coffee breaks... I met bishops and laity from the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Lithuania, Hong Kong, Germany, Canada, Mexico, Argentina, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The four weeks in Rome was a uniquely privileged opportunity to sense the Catholicity of Christ's Church, and like it or not, this kind of encounter changes you, compelling you to see that your vision of things is one perspective of among many. All these ideas and experiences from the Synod will continue in the coming year to percolate in the mind of the Church, in preparation for the second and final round next October. Might I invite everyone to continue to pray for the work that we synod members must do, both in the interim and at the Vatican next year. And that is Bishop Barron's letter on the synod. And I've seen this letter critiqued as being fairly ambiguous. In a lot of places it is. It's also mired in much of the problem we see today, which is the overwhelming majority of citations in modern documents is through post-conciliar documents. When the church's teaching on this stuff is unambiguous before Vatican II. It just is. Very, It's very clear, and for whatever reason, he doesn't cite anything preconciliar. although there's a reference to some preconciliar Catholic action things. Let's check in with the chat here. Logically, how can social media personalities be under this university document? Well, not this do- university document, but he, he wants a document like Ex Accordia Ecclesia. That's what he's argued for in the past. I wouldn't put past um, Fernandez to issue one. On behalf of Francis, I wouldn't put it past them at all. Mm-hmm. Will anybody submit to it? No. <laughs> I mean, um, my throat is basically fine. I'm just dealing with a minor head cold. It, it bounced back over Thanksgiving. I'm not sure why. My wife had it happen too. Um, When did uh, Bishop Barron publish this on the 21st of November? So this was just several days ago, and it took a couple days for it to take any notice in Catholic media. Sonny Jim says the ter- the use of the term love is used to shut down any opposition. Modernists say everything is done in love. We don't we if we don't allow them what they want to practice, we can't we don't yeah, that's I mean that's what it is. It's a you don't hear any talk about the distinctions of the types either. And what the end, ultimate end, which is willing the best for the for another person. And willing the best for another person is willing them for salvation, which means you cannot talk about this without sin and what the effect of sin is, the eternal consequence of sin. That's why you, we dare not hope that all men are saved. The one thing that I don't ever really bring up about Bishop Barron anymore because that that topic has been argued into just irrelevancy, really. But Mike Rizzio says, "Read it," and I hope that the bishop acknowledges the critical importance of the moment in which we live. He seems oblivious to the signs yeah that's one of my concerns about this actually is that there is a lot going on that he's there when you start putting the pieces together you see there's something very serious going on in the church and the synod is not this innocent thing that a lot of people want to write it off as for says he uses way too many words it's true i could have summarized that exact same document for him in half the length It's another one of the modern sort of tendencies, it seems, is to just write more for the sake of writing more. It is interesting to note a traditional Catholic says that a bishop of Barron's school is voicing opposition to this. Yes, he is very much a post-conciliar moderate. Another bishop that I consider a moderate in this is Cardinal Mueller, because if you really look at his body of work, he is a moderate. But Cardinal Mueller has been much more forceful about opposing this than Francis has, or than Bishop Barron has, and I think that's revealing as well. But it's interesting nonetheless, because as I say, one of the oldest axioms in politics is if you lose the moderates, you've lost the rhetoric battle. It's just true. You cannot have, you cannot win these kind of uh, political moves, because it's what it is. Synod synodality, the reforms are proposing are, it's all about politics in the church you cannot win these kind of these what's going on these kind of events in the church if you lose the moderates you just can't and it looks like they're losing the moderates now whether Rome will act unilaterally and not care what the moderates think is anybody's guess. If there are any questions in the in the chat this is the time to bring them. I am going to take the advice of giving my throat a rest here shortly from somebody from the thoughtful person in the chat. So let me know if there are any comments. If not, we will wrap this up. As I, the reason I was drinking my coffee during the stream is to uh, keep my voice fresh. <laughs> I think traditionalist Catholic, that is what he's saying. If you like, look over the, it could be that his thought on uh, Catholic on, online activity has changed since then it could be that his um i doubt his views about traditional catholicism have used had changed much since then but it's i don't think that's his uh, primary focus these days all right folks we will wrap this up here got a update for you on the german bishops actually going live in about an hour um my links to all these articles will be in today's show notes at return to tradition.org just a few minutes before that video goes live. So thanks folks. And, uh, pray for my throat if you would like, (laughs) because, uh, I tried to record one of my things for this coming weekend this morning and it didn't work. So anyway, as always pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.